There's a passage that they don't have up there that I want to read to you. This is actually the passage that we read this morning over Michael as he was being baptized. This is one of this is the one he wanted. It's one of the ones um, that Ginger, um, who is such a wonderful spiritual leader for our children in so many ways, they memorize lots of scripture, and this is one of the ones that he had memorized. Um, the fact that the word um, being still in it and quiet is probably probably part of why they've memorized this one. So, um, but Zephaniah. 317. Here's why I want to read it over us today is to, for the exact same reason. Probably there's a lot going on in your life. Probably there's a lot of, there are a lot of things that are keeping your life stirred up. And so as we continue to move forward in the worship that was started this morning and whatever God has been doing with you already this morning, um, and especially through the, that awesome time of singing. Um, so just meditate on this. Close your eyes if that suits you. At least for now, not later, not so much, but right now it's fine. Um, Zephaniah three seventeen. The Lord your God is in your midst, a mighty one who will save. He will rejoice over you with gladness. He will quiet you with his love. He will exalt over you with loud singing. Obviously, this is about his people at the time, a prophecy for his people Israel. Um, in some sense, there's no doubt that we get to have the honor of being living life as God's people. We are a chosen people, a holy people, as his followers of his son. So I pray today this prayer over us, that God would be in our midst and we would experience that, that he would save as he is mighty to do, that we can he would rejoice over us, that he would quiet us, and that he would exalt over us as we exalt over him as well. Um, okay, so today we start our conversation of the crucifixion. I mentioned out there, it seemed intriguing that we often do an Easter morning baptism service, and we've had as many as, I don't know, 17, 20, I don't know what the max would have been, people be baptized on Easter morning. Um, so we had eight baptized this morning, and, um, and it seemed intriguing to me that it happened to be on a Sunday when we're preaching the Easter message again. Um, I don't know if that's God's timing or how that worked out, but it's pretty cool. But I want to remind us of a few things. So I'm going to quote first from the Apostle Paul in Ephesians 1. In him we have redemption through his blood, the forgiveness of our trespasses, according to the riches of his grace, which he lavished upon us in all wisdom and insight, making known to us the mystery of his will, according to his purpose, which he set forth in Christ as a plan for the fullness of time, to unite all things in him, things in heaven and things on earth. Even as we continue to have this conversation, as we are now talking about the crucifixion itself, it's important that we realize. You throw that back up there. His will, his purpose, his plan, his timing, all of this. Again, if you were raised, like I think sometimes we are in the church with the idea that Jesus was being victimized in a way outside of his control, going through the crucifixion, the scourging and the crucifixion, that is false. He could have ended it at any point. He had the utter authority. This was not a shock to him. It wasn't a surprise to him. He could have easily avoided it. Avoided it. All he had to do was not cause it. He dragged everyone to this point. He pulled the entirety of human race to Golgotha. This was his plan. It was his 
will. It was his purpose. Now, obviously, experiencing life as a human being, that probably felt a little differently than it did experiencing life as God before the creation of time. And now here is a human being. He's experienced life for 30 years. He is filled with probably the same, some of the same fears and terrors and anxieties that we as humans are. But he is set to this purpose. It is the purpose of God the Father, created in place with him and the Son and the Spirit before the beginning of time, maybe with his entire divine counsel to put this purpose into place, his will, his purpose, his plan, even his timing. That here at this time, 2,000 years ago, in Judea, under Roman rule, everyone in the world came through Judea um, at some point, because you had to get there if you were going to Egypt, or if you were going to um, the, ba- the former Babylon regions, or if you were going to wherever you were going, you were going to take your road, was going to take you through here. Millions of people a year came through this place. Only God knows how many people saw him hanging there on that cross. Lots of people. But this was his timing, and it was his place, and it was his plan. In fact, as Matthew cites, though some of the last words on Jesus' lips was the phrase, my God, my God, why have you forsaken me? And in my opinion, a lot of theological stuff has been built on this that was probably not so great. I think like any good Jew, what Jesus is doing is he's quoting a psalm, the psalm that makes the most sense in the moment, the psalm that fits with the moment perfectly, and he's quoting Psalm 22. I'm going to read it to you. My God, my God, why have you forsaken me? Why are you so far from saving me from the words of my groaning? Oh, my God, I cry by day, but you do not answer, and by night, but I find no rest. We all feel that way sometimes. But the truth is still the truth, yet you are holy. Enthroned on the praises of Israel, in your, in you, you our fathers trusted. They trusted, and you delivered them. To you they cried and were rescued, and you they trusted and were not put to shame. But even in the midst of the truth, but I am a worm, not a man, scorned by mankind and despised by the people. All who see me mock me. They make mouths at me and they wag their heads. He trusts in the Lord. Let him deliver him. Let him rescue him since he delights in him. You are he who took me from the womb and you made me to trust you at my mother's breasts. On you I was cast from my birth and from my mother's womb you have been my God. Be not far from me, for trouble is near, and there is none to help. Many bulls encompass me. Strong bulls of Bashan surround me. They open wide their mouths at me, like like a ravening and roaring lion. I am poured out like, like water. All my bones are out of joint. My heart is like wax. It is melted within my breast. My strength is dried up like a pot shard. My tongue sticks to my jaws. You lay me in the dust of death. For dogs encompass me, a company of evildoers encircle me. They have pierced my hands, my feet. I can count my bones. They stare and gloat over me. They divide my garments among them, and for my clothing they cast lots. But you, O Lord, do not be far off. O you, my help, come quickly to my aid. Deliver my soul from the sword, my precious life from the power of the dog. Save me from the mouth of the lion. You have rescued me from the horns of the evil oxen. I will tell of your name to my brothers. In the midst of the congregation, I will praise you. You who fear the Lord, praise him. All you offspring of Jacob, glorify him. You who stand in awe of him, all the offspring of Israel. For he has not despised or abhorred the affliction of the afflicted. He has not hidden his face from him, but he has heard when he cried to him. 
For you, from you comes my praise in the great congregation. My vows I will perform before those who fear him. The afflicted shall eat and be satisfied. Those who seek him shall praise the Lord. May your hearts live forever. All the ends of the earth shall remember and turn to the Lord, and all the families of the nations shall worship before you. For kingship belongs to the Lord, and he rules over the nations. This is what Jesus was saying from the cross. This is what Jesus was quoting. Any Jew in the audience, if you start the 22nd Psalm, they're going to finish it in their mind. That's, that's, if it's the same thing as us starting a movie quote and not finishing it. We're, I've done that before in here where I can start a quote or, or a commercial. That's even better. I can start a commercial and everybody in the room can finish it. That's what the Psalms were for the people of Israel. And when, you, when he starts one, they're all going to finish this and they're going to be playing this out in their minds. His hands and feet are pierced. His, as we talked about from the scourging, his ribs are probably exposed to the ear. You can count his bones. We're going to see how more of this is played out. The psalmist, Jesus knew this psalm. He knew when he, when he would quote it. He knew what was coming. This was part of the plan all along. In fact, you may remember when we teach through Christmas and Luke 2, the same region they were shepherds in the field, keeping watch over their flock by night. And an angel of the Lord appeared to them, and the glory of the Lord shone around them. And they were filled with great fear. And the angel said to them, Fear not, for behold, I bring you good news of great joy that will be for all the people. For unto you is born this day in the city of David a Savior, who is Christ the Lord. This will be a sign for me that you will find a baby wrapped in swaddling clothes and lying in a manger like a Passover lamb. This was a, this was a picture that people would have understood. And this idea, this is the good news. The good news is that he came. But part of the good news is why he came, which was to die and to carry the weight of our sin and to bear the brunt of God's wrath for our sin. You may even remember what he said in John 10. This is one of the steeliest things that Jesus ever says. In John 10, 18, talking about being the good shepherd, no one takes it from me. I lay it down of my own accord. He's talking about his life here. I have the authority to lay it down, and I have the authority to take it up again. This charge I have received from my Father. This entire time, the entire crucifixion, no one has the authority to take his life. This is something that he has chosen. What's shocking, and as we understand that understanding, especially if that's new for you, that new understanding of recognizing this is something that was Jesus' plan from day one. He has woven it into place. He is consider, he's continuing to weave it to finish out what he has started. We'll talk about that next week. To finish out this plan and to play it to its conclusion. It's, it's natural for us when we think of him as like that he's being controlled and other people are doing this to him, that it's, it takes the burden off of him to push through this of his own will, of his own obedience to the Father, and most shockingly of all, of his love for us. That yes, he is considering the will and the obedience of the Father, the ultimate measure of success. And that will is inspired by the Father's and the Son's and the Spirit's love for us. This was a plan they didn't need. It was a plan we needed. And out of his love, he continued to hang there. I, 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 there's, every time there's every song, no song is perfect. No song is perfect. John and I have talked about the line, it was my sin that held him there. 
is not totally accurate. It was not his sin, it was not our sin that held him there. It was his love that held him there. My, son, my sin is what made the necessity of him finding a way to redeem me, but his love kept him on that cross, not nails, not Romans. Well, John and I talked about that this week, and Paul too. The, this is something the Roman Empire could never have pulled off. They're just the Roman Empire. Yes, with all their power, with all their might, you do not crucify the Son of God at your will. I, my sin is not powerful enough to hold Jesus to the cross, not even close. But only thing powerful enough to bear the weight of all of our sin and the wrath of Almighty God justly poured out on my sin, the only person powerful enough to do that was Jesus Christ, and the only motivation powerful enough was his love. That's where we are. We have to hold that in our mind as we go through the crucifixion. How does the death, this was the line that John Redfern said as we were talking about this, how would the death of just another Jewish rebel at the hands of the Romans reach out and change the lives of billions of people for the next thousands of years? How is that possible? Answer, because it was the plan. It was the plan all along. That's why it worked. It's not because he was just another Jewish rebel being killed by the Romans. They did that for sport. That was not a big deal. It was what he was carrying to that cross and what he accomplished with it that matters. So in John 19, 16, we pick up with the verse, so he delivered him over to be crucified. So they took Jesus and he went out bearing his own cross to the place called the place of the skull, which in Aramaic is called Golgotha. Now the other gospels carry way more information here about the crucifixion. Um, Probably, again, as we've talked about many times, John knows that you're sitting there with your copy of Matthew, Mark, and Luke in your hand. And, and he does not very rarely does John feel the need to fill in the exact same gaps that, his, that the gospel writers, his friends, had already done. And this is one of those cases, I think. He delivered them to a place to be crucified. He, doesn't, he leaves out details like the role of Simon the Cyrene. He leaves out a lot of the different details in regards to the crucifixion. And, and here's the thing, a lot of the things that you think may be details, especially if you grew up in more traditional churches, that you may have grown up believing there's a whole lot more things that happened in here that may or may not have happened that are tradition, not scripture. All the times he fell or the different things like that, all, all that's been added in. It may be right, but it's, it's all tradition that's been added in at some point. This is, John is much, much more concerned with why in regards to the crucifixion than what. That's a, a much bigger thing. No one knows... By the way, exactly why this place is called the place of the skull. Um, it may have been simply because it was a common execution site. That's possible. Um, it might have reminded people of a skull. If you've ever been to the garden tomb in Israel, um, they, they emphasize the fact that there's a rock formation that looks like a little bit like a skull um, on the wall. Maybe that's, that's part of the case. That's possible. There's an old church tradition that this is where Shem had buried the skull of Adam um, but there's no, there's no biblical source for that, and um, I mean, certainly no archaeological source for that. But they went to this place called the skull, the place of the skull. And it says in verse 18, there they crucified him and him with two others, one on either side and Jesus in between them. Look at that, he has the seat of honor. 
That's why John tells us. He's sitting in the seat of honor. Again, others gave us a lot more detail. The scorn poured out on Jesus by the crowds, the mockery of the thieves, the repentance of one of the thieves, etc. None of that's in John. He knew we would be reading the others. John was an eyewitness. And so John doesn't feel the need to correct. It's important when it comes to archaeology or anthropology. John doesn't feel the need to correct what Matthew, Mark, or Luke have said, even though he's got them. He was there. Maybe Luke even interviewed John for his version. Maybe that's part of why John doesn't feel the need to, to say anything. Luke might have interviewed other eyewitnesses like Mary and maybe John, but John was there. John is less focused, like I said, on what happened and more on why it happened. Both of these are probably represented in this. All four gospel mention the representation of the charges, which I'm going to talk about here in a second. But John gives us more insight. So let's take just a second, though, to talk about crucifixion. I'm not going to go into a lot of gory detail for the same reasons we didn't want to go into a lot of gory detail about scourging. And most, most Christians today have been through either by seeing, the, seeing a movie or by reading it. Um, a few decades ago, there was a, a very intense medical analysis of crucifixion that you may have heard read. If you've never read that or seen it read, look it up online. Um, it's, it's intense, um, to say the least. Um, but fundamentally, what crucifixion was, was death by suffocation. Um, that, that as the person, and it turns out the Romans did it all kinds of different ways. And so we don't know for sure how Jesus's was done. Sometimes they did them on T-posts, but it sounds like Jesus was on a true cross because there was something nailed above his head. Um, sometimes the feet and arms were tied um, as well as nailed, sometimes just tied. Sometimes there was a little platform for the feet to sit on. Sometimes there's a little platform for the rear end to sit on. And, all different types of options. Sometimes it seems their, their feet were turned at a side angle and then they were nailed through both ankles with one nail and sometimes maybe their legs were on both sides of the cross and nailed through the side. Maybe they were set down forward and nailed. It Actually, we have historians who say that walking through a field of crucified people by the Romans that they were all different ways that it was done. They reference the fact that sometimes it was even done upside down and traditionally, for example, that's how the apostle Peter was crucified. They're all horrific. However it's done, it creates the constant issue of having to push yourself against the weight of the nails in your arms and your feet, which cannot fathom the excruciation of that. Jumped out of a third-story building one time under construction and landed on a board with a big old nail in it that came all the way through the top of my foot. And uh, I was about a 10-year-old. So sitting there looking down at this nail... That's now sticking out of the top of my tennis shoe, um, going, what do, what do I do now? <laughs> the board was too small. Like if I picked it up, the board just came up like this. So I had, my friend had to stand on the board and reach down and grab my foot. Th can you imagine what it was like, though, to push against that at a sideward angle in order to take a breath? What that would be like? I can't even fathom. Have your arms and your legs like that to have to pull against that to take a breath. And eventually when you couldn't take the breath and when you were down like that, slowly your lungs would fill with fluid. And then you would, over time, often probably days, hang there, humiliated. And by the way, they weren't on some 20-foot cross. They were generally just a little bit above eye level and stark naked. All meant to be humiliation. It was just a message, that's all it was. This is what happens to the enemies of Rome. Don't miss it, don't forget it. We'll make it as memorable as we can. 
as you watch this person like a fish out of water gasp for air for hours and hours and days until they finally suffocate. Jesus didn't last that long, as we're going to find out, most likely because he'd already been essentially beaten to death before they crucified him. So we are dealing with a horrific way of dying. A helpless, it's like drowning in the air. Um, which I think was the least of what Jesus was bearing. The abandonment of his friends and his followers. He's down to a few women and John. Everyone else has run. No one else is cheering for him. The emotional experience of feeling disconnected with the, the wrath of God poured out on him. That's, what is that like? It would, that would be incredible for us to experience. What's it like for someone who's always had perfect communion to experience that? Who's never sinned to suddenly experience the gap that is created by our sin? Think of the way our sin disconnects us from our spouses. Disconnects us from our children. Disconnects us from one another. The fear and the pain and all the different things, the competitiveness and all of that. Now imagine having never experienced that and then suddenly experiencing it for the entire race of mankind. The crucifixion may have barely been a distraction for Jesus. With what he was bearing and what he was experiencing, we can't even fathom it. That's what's going on. As he is being crucified, Pilate, it says in verse 19, wrote an inscription and had it put on the cross. And here's what it said. This is a big deal to John. He spends a lot of time in very primo territory here, right? Jesus of Nazareth, the king of the Jews. Many of the Jews read the inscription for the place where Jesus was crucified was near the city and it was written in Aramaic and Latin and Greek. Pilate was up to something, wasn't he? So the chief priest of the Jews said to Pilate, don't write the king of the Jews. Don't put that on there. Instead put this man said, I am the king of the Jews. Politicians haven't changed much in the last 2,000 years, have they? Pilate answered, I've written what I've written. He's done with these people. He's, I mean, he's had it up to here with them. For them to come back and demand one more thing from him, they're lucky he did not just have them all killed. I mean, he was done with them. Pilate answered, I've written what I've written. Go away. Don't ask me for anything else. All your favors are used up for a long time. I've written what I've written. But I've always wondered what that looks like. And luckily in today's world, all we have to do is Google it and get an idea. So this is, this is what would have been written on the sign. That's kind of cool. You can also see it in wooden form. There's the idea of what would have been nailed above, the, above Jesus very clearly. Now, hold on to that one for a second. Some of you who grew up in the Catholic tradition, especially, you're used to that, I-N-R-I. This is, this is the Latin for, there's no J in Latin, so Jesus' name would begin with an I. Jesus of Nazareth, Rex. Rex means king, Jesus of Nazareth, king of the Jews. That's what it stands for. That's obviously not what was written up there. The whole thing was written. It was meant to be very clear. But now you know what Henry means in case you see that anywhere. You may have grown up not knowing that. So go back one. This is above Jesus' head. The, the people, uh, the priests are mad about this. They don't like this. How dare you claim that he is the king of the Jews? But remember, that had been Pilate's proclamation. He had already, through the power of his authority as governor of Judea, he had already declared Jesus the king of the Jews. And once he had declared it, he refers to him as the king of the Jews from that point forward. So he puts up on this, this is who's being crucified here, who's being crucified, in case you don't know, you're wandering by. 
You're from Syria, you're from Damascus, you're wandering down this road, and you go, who's being crucified here? What are his charges? Um, okay, there's a thief, the king of the Jews. Wait, the king of the Jews? This would have started quite a few conversations. This is exactly what Pilate wanted. He was fed up with them. He knew this would irritate them. He knew this would make them mad. That's probably a big part of why he did it. But here's what's wild to us. What can be wild to us is, does this feel a little bit like a plan's being played out? That the Roman government has now declared Jesus the king of the Jews as they crucify him? That seems like a plan. He was taunting and humiliating the Jews. This was their claim against Jesus, so Pilate stuck it up there. It says in verse 23, when the soldiers had crucified Jesus, they took his garments and divided them into four parts, one for each soldier, also his tunic. The tunic was seamless, woven in one piece from top to bottom. So they said to one another, let us not tear it, but cast lots to see uh, whose it shall be. This was to fill the, the scripture, which says, they divided my garments among them, and for my clothing they cast lots. We just read that a few minutes ago. So just again for you to have a clear picture of what's going on here, you have the four Roman soldiers that are apparently, that we now know from John there were four at the crucifixion. The four Roman soldiers there. And, and they've taken Jesus' clothes and they're dividing it up and whatever. And they come to a piece that's a seamless linen piece, literally without seam. Probably would have been something like this. Probably a little longer because Jesus probably wore robes. But a talit, which is the garment that is worn by now by most Orthodox Jewish men. You'll see it. When you see them, sometimes you'll see the tassels hanging out from under their clothes. It's very, it would have been very, this is not a fine one. Theirs probably would have been very, in fact, it tells us Jesus' was a fine one. It probably given to him as a gift by one of the wealthy people who followed him. And it would have hung down. And the prayer tassels would have probably hung far enough down for Jesus that they would have dragged just tiny bit on the ground, which would have been like casting up prayers constantly. That's almost certainly what the woman with the issue of blood touched as Jesus came by. So they wore it over their heads. But Jesus, again, I think Jesus' would have been long enough probably to touch the ground. That's my opinion. And so they get this. It's very fine. It's commanded by Scripture that the Jewish men have them. And so here you have is one piece, and it was reinforced around the neck because you're not supposed to tear them. When you rend your garments, you're not supposed to do that when you're wearing one of these. That's part of, when the high priest rent his garment, he either wasn't wearing one, which is a huge problem, or he was wearing it, which he did in defiance of the, of the rabbinical teaching of the time. And so that's what his purpose was. Well, they don't want to tear that thing up. They're not going to tear. How do you tear a piece of fabric that has no seams? There's no way to tear it. And so instead of tearing it, they roll dice for it. So you can imagine Jesus is up there on the cross with these others. Now, this is, this is their use. The Romans are used to this taking days. And they've got to probably watch from beginning to end to make sure no one tries to take them down, to make sure no one tries to finish them off. They're there to represent Rome. And so that's what they're doing. Well, they get bored. They start rolling dice for Jesus' clothing. John may be making an important point here. One, he's certainly making a point that Jesus was following the Torah scripture about um, clothing. One, that's cool. Two, it may be that not all men wore them at that time. In fact, a, the, a lot of the commentators said that at this time, only the priests wore them. And maybe at Passover, only the high priest. If that's right, then Jesus is intentionally declaring himself high priest through the Passover meal and was wearing a high priestly talit, certainly at least a priestly talit that he's wearing. Again, Jesus, John is telling us through the narration that Jesus saw himself as a priest, maybe as the high priest. 
That's pretty cool. It's teaching us something about what's going on here, signifying his high holy status. So the soldiers did these things, but standing by the cross, Jesus were, were standing by the cross of Jesus were his mother. Now this is kind of fun here. Watch this. Were his mother and his mother's sister, Mary the wife of Clopas and Mary Magdalene. Now this has confused scholars for a long time, right? What's Jesus' mother's name? Mary and his mother's sister, Mary and Mary Magdalene. So there's been debate for years of whether there's three women here or four women. I fall into the four women opinion, not that that matters to anybody, but I fall into the four women because I think there's supposed to be a something clarifying here. I don't think Mary's sister's name was Mary. It's fundamentally what I come down to. Um, after having children, if I had ever thought that Mary's sister might could have been named Mary, I gave up on that. I know George Foreman did that, but I don't think that's been done many times other than him in history, right? And so I, I just can't imagine going, this is Mary, because just the confusion created on staff now that we have two Chris's is becoming um, untenable. And so um, we're going to have to change Chris Sherrod's name. I don't know where we're going to go to. We'll let you know. But um, this is a, but this, this idea of going, okay, so you got, you got these four, here's, I think there's four women here, and here's who I think they are. I think we've got Mary, his mother. We have his mother's sister, who other things in scripture would indicate was probably Salome, S-A-L-O-M-E, maybe Salome, I don't pronounce it. Um, none of these are being, they're all being pronounced in English. None of them sound anything like this by them, by the way, none of them. Um, even, even Mara is Mary, not Mary. But um, Salome, John, who is probably John and James's mother. So John, who's here, he's here with his mother, who is probably Mary's sister, making John a relative of Jesus Christ, which that's, that's pretty much accepted. Mary would be the wife of Zebedee. This would mean it's Mary's sister who comes to Jesus asking for James and John to be chief in his kingdom, which makes even more sense. If this is Jesus's aunt showing up going, hey, you know what? I want John on your left and James on your right. How does that sound? And, and by the way, they're called Boagernes, which means the sons of thunder. And I've always assumed that refers to her, right? She's thunder. Um, then you have Mary, so you have Mary, and by the way, John puts, John and often, often writers in this time period would, would put people together in couplets like this. And so very likely what you've got is two couplets. You've got one, Mary, his mother, and his mother's sister. That's, that's one pair. Then you have Mary, the wife of Clopas, who is probably the mother of the other apostle named James, okay, called James the Lesser. Don't you hate that? Poor guy. I mean, in the kingdom of God, that works out fine, but otherwise... Um, and then you have Mary Magdalene. So you have four women, three named Mary, and then one named Salome. Um, so you literally have three women whose name means bitter and one whose name means peace. Um, that's significant. The, the Hebrew people named their children significant things. And Mary was, they think, I've read as like one in 12 women, maybe one in eight women was named Mary at the time of Jesus when they dig up bone boxes. This is because life was so bitter. This was a cry out to God. Life is bitter. Maybe one in four, if I remember correctly. And then a huge number of them were named Jesus, which has been confusing for archaeologists, you can imagine. The first bone box you dig up that says Jesus on it, you're like, <gasps> and then you find nine more in the same tomb, and you go, oh, well, maybe it doesn't mean that much. Um, and Because Jesus means God save us. Yeshua, same name as Joshua, God save us. 
it's cool that in this situation, we've talked about this a few times, we're going to see it again, that in the midst of this great plan, in the midst of this great plan, this cosmic plan created by the triune God before heaven, before heaven and earth were created, the most significant thing that's ever happened in human history, Jesus can't, can't keep from taking care of his mom in this. I mean, doesn't he have other stuff to be doing? And yet the beauty of Jesus, who is this guy? Who is at one point dealing with the greatest cosmic battle between good and evil that has ever been accomplished. And he is in the process of finishing that out. And oh, by the way, mom, you're going to be staying with John from now on. John, that's now your mom. Okay, now, like, it's, it's a wild, it's so, again, it shows again how in control Jesus was of all of this. He's taking care of the details. And by the way, Jesus has a bunch of other brothers and sisters. Why doesn't he just turn them over to them? I agree with the commentators because we know that at this point, they didn't believe in him. That's very clear that they didn't. They didn't believe in him, and Jesus does not want to turn his mother under, to, into, under the authority of his disbelieving brothers. She would have immediately been under their authority. She might not have been able to travel with the disciples, as we know she did. There's all types of things here. And so Jesus, is, as the eldest son, is making an executive decision. This is now your mom. And it tells us from this point on, in fact, she did live with John. Pretty amazing. Actually, I didn't finish that, I don't think. Um, verse 26, and when Jesus saw his mother and the disciples whom he loved standing nearby, he said to his mother, woman, behold your son. By the way, that had to be a little bit confusing because Jesus, not like Jesus can point. Woman, behold your son. She'd be like, well, that's, that's why I'm here. No, no. And then he, point, he looks to John, and you behold your mother. And from that hour, the disciple took her into his family, into his home. This was the plan. In Galatians 4, but when the fullness of time had come, God sent forth his son, born of a woman, born under the law, to redeem those who were under the law, so that we might receive adoption as sons. And because you are sons, God has sent the spirit of his son into our hearts, crying, Abba, Father. So you're no longer a slave, but a son. And if a son, then an heir through God. How can God have a son? I'm sure you've wondered that. That seems so strange. He doesn't have a wife. How can he have a son? Once again, if we're not careful, we reverse this. Remember that the relationship between God the Father and God the Son transcends the idea of son. It, it was before there's such a thing as humans. It isn't that God, that God said, oh, we're gonna, I'm going to now have a son, and then on earth we're, we're thinking like, oh, it's just like that. No, no, the relationship between God the Father and God the Son transcends our language in any way we could ever understand it. It transcends creation. For example, think how poor a representation of salvation baptism is. What we just experienced this morning, as beautiful as it is, think what a poor representation it is. We gather around, someone is dunked in water and brought back up. There's so many cool things about that. What is that compared to what's going on in heaven at the moment of salvation? What's really happening at salvation? Think how poor and pale a representation baptism actually is. Think how poor and pale a representation communion is of the, of the wedding feast of the Lamb. They're, they're, every, every, all of our attempts at this, even though we're commanded to do them to remind us, I think it really works the other direction. We know perfectly well that sonship, children, 
that relationship between a parent and a child transcends biology. We know that through fostering and adoption. We know that through mentoring and spiritual parenting. We know it transcends it. Even just that level of it does. But we often make the mistake that God is using our concept. No, no. He is explaining to us as foolish children with the words that we try, we might understand some piece of the relationship. You can almost imagine God going, somebody going, what's the relationship between God the Father and God the Son? What's the relationship between Yahweh and Jesus and God going, it's, well, how do I put this into words? He's like a son to me. In fact, he's my only begotten son. Does that, does that help? It's like he's trying to use, where our language is of such a poor attempt at understanding that relationship. So don't, don't make the mistake of reversing that. Um, Dr. Heaton, uh, in a Bible study with Charlie Heaton one time, he referenced theology as like three-year-olds getting together to talk about sex <laughs> when we talk theology. The human language is attempting to do justice somehow to some of this. We don't get it backwards. What we call fathers and sons and daughters and mothers are a poor representation of what it actually means in the cosmic sense. It, what it actually means transcends us. God the Father and God the Son transcends anything we have. The pride we feel and the love that we have for our children pales before his relationship with Jesus. Um, yesterday in a soccer game, Michael, who I got to baptize this morning, uh, Michael, as a, as a, he's, he's, um, um, he's a great team player. Let's just put it that way, okay? So one of the kids, one of the little girls, a soccer ball hits her in the stomach really hard, and she tries to tough it out, and she just can't. She starts crying, and she's sitting there holding her tummy, and the game all stops, and everybody gathers around, and they're, you know, the coach is like, all right, you go on off, and you come on. And so the little girl turns to go, she's tiny, turns to go walk off the field, and Michael walks up to her and puts his arm around her and walks her all the way off the field every step of the way, in front of no one, there was no one else there. Michael didn't give a rip about what anybody thought about this, I promise you. He probably wasn't even aware knowing Michael. So we're, he walks her all the way off the field, sets her down, sits her down in the little chair and pats her on the head and then turns and runs back onto the field. I mean, everyone was like, who is that kid? He's such a little flake all during the game. And then here he is totally focused in on this little girl who's crying and hurting because her stomach got hurt. And it's all he cares about is getting her to her chair and then comforting her with a little pat on the head. And then he runs back out. Man, think of the pride. I mean, you're sitting there watching that, just the pride welling up going, that's my son. I mean, I want everybody to know, like, that's my son. That's, that's the kid. That's a, isn't that amazing? That's, that's the, the character that's boiling in him. He's getting baptized tomorrow. Come see him be baptized tomorrow. Like, this is, such a, this is such a beautiful thing. That is nothing, nothing, nothing compared to what God the Father has for God the Son and shockingly for us. It's enough, it was enough, that love, that pride was enough to hold Jesus there, to face all of that. I'm gonna finish up with this. So now what? Hebrews 12, one and two. Therefore, since we are surrounded by such a great cloud of witnesses, meaning all of those who have put their faith in Christ, even without having perfect understanding. Let us lay aside every weight and sin which clings so closely. Let us run with endurance the race set before us, looking to Jesus, the founder and perfecter, the author and perfecter of our faith, for who for the joy set before him endured the cross. The joy that he had, that's why he did that. He despised the shame I love the idea of shaming shame, but that's a whole other conversation. And is seated at the right hand of the throne of God. Who is this guy? 
What kind of God does stuff like this? All the blood and sweat and biology of us amphibian humans. So he comes down here and experiences that. Creatures who need physical representation of spiritual truths. How weird must that be to be God, the Son, and then to experience physical representations of the actual truth? How weird must that feel? I didn't read the last few verses of Psalm 22. So that's what we're going to close on. All the prosperous of the earth eat and worship. Before him... Before him shall bow all who go down to the dust, even the one who could not keep himself alive. Posterity shall serve him. It shall be told of the Lord, the coming generation. They shall come and proclaim his righteousness to a people yet unborn, that he has done it. How about that? Next week, we're going to spend all of our time pretty much on the phrase, it is finished. If you have a friend who doesn't know Jesus, who you might be able to talk into coming to church for coffee and donuts. Next week would be a good one. We'll be focused so much on that, on this concept. They shall come and proclaim his righteousness to a people yet unborn. That's us. We were a people yet unborn. What's the proclamation? He has done it. Let's pray. Father, thank you for your son, that you loved us enough to send your son to come and rescue us, and that he was man enough and God enough to do it. Thank you that he has done it and that we can rest in the truth of your salvation. Father, there's anyone here who has never put their faith in you, who has never really understood what it is that your son has done, whether they are old or young, lifelong church members or first-time guests, and whoever they are, I pray that your spirit will work now and that today will be the day of salvation. That the example of those eight kids this morning, putting their faith in you and then proudly proclaiming it before all those people. Lord, I pray that that will draw us to your son through the power of your spirit and in his name. Amen.